And following our reading from 1 Thessalonians 5, we'll turn a few pages further in Scripture to Hebrews chapter 10. First of all, 1 Thessalonians 5, this is from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And we read there, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting, our faith, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. As far as reading from 1 Thessalonians 5, let's turn now <coughs> to Hebrews chapter 10. It's page 1191. 1,191. Hebrews 10, we'll read there the verses 16 through 31. Sorry, verse 15 through 31. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, Christ's body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who was treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who was insulted, the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In response to the sermon, we'll do exactly that, encourage one another by singing together hymn 71. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ and guests, we live in a time and a place where the focus is very strongly on individual advancement. When you listen to the chatter around you in society, on social media, in advertising, in political circles, in coffee shops, A lot of conversations are about what people want, what people deserve. The focus is on rights and privileges at the expense of responsibilities and accountability. It's all about what humans are to receive, what we're to get. Now that's very much in contrast with the Christian life. The Christian life is about sacrifice. It's about giving rather than receiving. That giving is exemplified in Jesus Christ. In the chapters of Hebrews before our text, the author has laid out how the Christ has given his life for the salvation, the eternal happiness of God's people. Because of that sacrifice, as we read, God will remember our sins no more. And that's why we can have confidence to enter before God's throne of grace. God's not going to destroy us because of our sins. As we heard this morning, our anxiety is gone. We have security in Jesus Christ. Now, just as Christ gave, so we who profess to be Christ's followers are also called upon to give. We're called to live sacrificial lives. We are to detest ourselves for our sins, crucify our old nature, 
commit our whole life to the Lord's service as living members of God's church. And as we experience a public profession of faith during this service, we'll hear those very questions being asked. And those of us who have made profession of faith, you've committed to that. We live not to receive, we live to sacrifice. And that's also the thrust of our text. Our text opens with the words, let us consider how to stir up one another, how to spur one another on. Consider. Here is a matter that requires careful thought. In view of the forgiveness of sins that have been achieved through Jesus Christ and the call to have confidence in coming to God, we've got to give careful thought to how we might stir one another up to do good and and not to fall back into sinful ways. And that considering, that's the point now, the focus is not on how we might receive encouragement, but how we might give encouragement. The Holy Spirit calls us to reflect upon how we might be active in stirring each other up. And not just in being okay with being stirred up. And that expression, to stir up, emphasizes all the more the activity. The NIV has spur on. I think that's a touch weak. It's trying to put a positive spin on something that, as a word, is actually quite negative. The original Greek here is the word from which the medical term paroxysm comes. A paroxysmal cough, that, that's a cough that is violent, that doesn't stop. It's the kind of coughing fit you have when you just can't get air and, and, and the muscle action working the cough is so strong you may even start vomiting. Back in the day when Hebrews was written, the term paroxysm was used to describe any fit, an attack you might have because of a disease. And so words like irritate or agitate catch the nuance well here. Let's think carefully carefully about how we might agitate one another. There's a lot of force in our text. Again, society around us focuses on what individuals deserve, what you are to get out of life. But in the church of God, the people focus on what individuals give, on what you put into life. So let's hear what we are commanded. We hear God's good news this afternoon with this theme, consider how to stir each other up. And we'll give attention to the three matters as they're listed in our text. The purpose for this stirring up, that's to love and good works. The means, that's meeting and encouraging. And then the motivator, that's the coming day. Stir one another up to love and good works. Now, that word stir, with its, it, it, its sense of irritate or agitate, doesn't sound very positive. No one likes to be agitated. No one likes to be irritated. But then again, agitation doesn't have to be bad. Boys and girls, when you're making a hot chocolate, you put the powder in the cup, then you add water, milk, maybe a bit of both, and then you stir it all together, 
Now, hot chocolate takes a bit of work, so you've got to stir it really hard. A scientist would call that agitating the solution. Agitation, stirring. It can be positive. And maybe the NIV's word spur, spur on, does catch that sense of it. After all, spurs are pointy things on the heels of cowboy boots that poke you, that you poke into a horse to get it to move. But see the positive here. For the point, the purpose of the stirring is love and good works. And you're not going to consider love or good works a negative thing. Love and good works. Love, that's the point of human existence. Love is the glory of God. God has revealed in Scripture that He is the God of relationship. Relationship that is characterized by love and loyalty. Though there's just one God, God exists in three persons who are in a mutual relationship of love and loyalty with one another. The love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's perfect. And then God created humans in the image and likeness of Himself. Or should I say, of themselves. For when God created humans in His image, He actually spoke of Himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image. God is love, and so we humans are to be love. And that love of ours is first and foremost focused on God, the God who created us, the God who saves us. One way in which Scripture makes clear to us that the focus of us humans in life should be on God is through its teaching on prayer. The Lord Jesus taught us a prayer that helps us put our requests to God in a certain perspective. The verses before <laughs> our text speak of us entering into God's presence, and that's what you do when you pray. And what do you pray for? Well, Jesus said, pray first of all, your name be hallowed. God be praised and glorified. Your kingdom come. God's rule to be recognized in all of creation. Your will be done. God's commands are to be obeyed by all people. Living in obedience to the triune God is serving the lordship, the kingship of the triune God, and is in turn bringing glory to the triune God. And so consider, congregation, how to stir up one another in love. First and foremost, love for God. But love, of course, is not limited to just God. In loving God, we will love all those who love God. For our love for God implies copying God's love. And God's love isn't limited to Himself. It extends to His people. And beyond that, it extends to all humanity, to all creation. Indeed, in the act of stirring up one another to love, we're actually expressing love for one another. We're all focused on having each other walk a closer walk with God experiencing the peace of God that comes through Christ. And as we reach out into the community, so that also those who do not know God, who do not serve God, that they may come to that point. Think on this. God's love for the world was expressed in the sacrifice of Himself through His Son. 
we will express that same love for the world in sacrificing ourselves. And that sacrificing begins with taking the time and making the effort to stir up, to agitate, to spur on each other to love. Okay, so what does this love look like? The Bible is very clear on that. If reflecting God's love and loyalty is the purpose of human life, then the will of God for our lives, what God wants us to do, the commandments of God, boil down to the single commandment, you shall love. When the Jews of Jesus' day sought to play out commandments against each other, figuring one commandment might be more important than another, Jesus said, no. Love is the commandment on which the whole Bible is based. Humans were created to love God first and foremost, even at the expense of friends, of family, even at the expense of themselves. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, strength. And in the context of loving God, humans are called upon to love one another. We're to love our neighbors. Neighbor, that's a Hebrew expression for your fellow human. So we are to love fellow humans, just like we love ourselves. And the perfect example of such human love is given us in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God who became a human being just like us. He sacrificed himself in order to make us right with God. When he was confronted with sick people or poor people or, or people who lived in sin, he gave himself for them. He always reached out to others. And, and the people who refused to help others, he admonished. He reprimanded them for their selfishness. Christ did good to all through obedience to the law. And so love is expressed through doing, through obedience to God's commandments. Remember how love for God is to be absolute, to be first and foremost? Well, the first four commandments focus on that love for God. Love for God is mutually exclusive. No other God but the triune God revealed in Scripture. Love God in His way. Worship is shaped by God's will, not by what we want. Don't use God's authority to further your own ends, but use God's name properly. And follow the pattern in life set by God so that one day every seven you can spend in devotion to God. Do good by fulfilling the commandments of God. And love fellow humans. As you love yourself, respect authority, respect life, respect intimacy, respect possessions, respect honor. Do good to others as you would have others do good to you. So Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and for all this love to be perfect, it's not just about what you do, it's also about what you desire. Do not desire the things that belong to others, but be content with what God has given you and be willing to sacrifice what you have been given by God for the cause of God. So congregation, consider that you've been called 
to stir up one another to love and good works. Rachel, Emma, that's what you're committing to as you profess your faith in God today. You are ready not just to be stirred up to love and good works, to be spurred on to feel the prickles of others, but you are ready to stir others up to love and good works. And brothers and sisters, all of you who have have professed faith in God, you've made that commitment. Live up to that commitment. All the more as as you seek to chart a course also for the church here at Surrey Maranatha. For it's through love and good works that we bring glory to God. And when you're called to do something, the question comes naturally, what might be the means to fulfill that calling? That's our second thought. The means to stir each other up are meeting and encouraging. And there's a bit of a negative tone in our text at this point, not neglecting to meet together. I've got to mention here that the structure of the sentence is better reflected by the ESV than the NIV 1984. The NIV 1984, that's the Pew Bible here, um, splits the sentence into two, but it's actually one sentence in the original, with verse 25 is secondary to verse 24. And the NIV 2011 has actually caught that and returned back to the single sentence. You see, the point here is we are to stir up one another by not neglecting to meet with each other. Among the original audience of the people who received that letter to the Hebrews, some were in the habit of doing just that, neglecting to meet together. The original audience, they were Jews who had converted to Christianity, but due to the pressures exerted on them by other Jews, they were beginning to return to Jewish practices rather than maintaining the truths of Christianity. Most basically, they were going back to the habits of making sacrifices in the temple for their sins, thus denying that Jesus had made full payment through his sacrifice. And the author points out how futile this is, because the earthly temple is on its way out. It's no longer needed. And these drifting Jewish Christians, no longer convinced of the value of Christ's sacrifice, they also no longer saw any value in getting together as Christians. They began to skip worship services. After all, there's no point as Christ is insufficient unto salvation. They skipped communal Bible and prayer studies. They neglected to visit with each other. And it would also seem that this fear, this neglect, was partly in due to their their fear of persecution. I mean, if fellow Jews saw you gathering with Christians, your life would be made miserable. But the truth is, this neglect to get together would see them drift only further away, because out of sight is out of mind. Out of sight is out of mind. And so, congregation, there's a very clear and a very practical exhortation for us here. For an individual and to belong, that individual's got to be present. And we need to make the effort to be present whenever we can and as often as we can. Don't let the pressures of life get to you so that your commitment to God, your, your love for God, that's what it is, is compromised. 
And consider also how we can stir up each other to this love, how we can help others to be there when God's people meet, maybe in a very practical way. For example, ensuring that someone has a ride to church, to a Bible study, be it by messaging with one another as an event approaches. And I think especially of Bible studies and and outreach activities. Be it by helping each other with our busy lives so that there is actually opportunity to meet with each other. You know, during the pandemic, society in general has experienced how devastating the failure to meet with one another has been. The loneliness that has existed in care facilities, the struggles of the vulnerable, the setback that children have experienced. Recently, CTV News published a report. The kids are not all right, but it's not just the children. Meeting together, seeing one another, is required for spiritual well-being. And let me just focus on worship services. And here you'll notice indeed how spur on, stir up, or agitate is exactly the right word. It was said during the pandemic by a health authority that faith does not require a building. Live streams enough. But it doesn't, and we've seen the proof. Live stream is a one-way street. Attending worship services through live stream turns worshipers into consumers. It's still worship. Our church assemblies have affirmed that. But in the long run, faith does need a building. Think on this. God, being mindful of our insensitivity and weakness, gave us sacraments to strengthen our faith. That's Belgian Confession, Article 33. Now, the only way in which sacraments can be experienced is in person. Baptism incorporates us into Christ and the church. It signifies and seals to us how we belong to God's family. And the family that prays together stays together. The Lord's Supper is the expression of unity with God and among God's people. You've got to sit at the table with one another in order to experience that unity. Who is it that wander away from the church? Isn't it those who neglect to meet together? Do not neglect to meet together. That's Greek idiom to express a very strong command. The the, the Greeks do that by using a double negative. I mean, the author could have said, meet together, especially as some of you are not in the habit of doing that. But no, the Spirit had him state it more strongly. Do not neglect to meet together. Give careful thought to your church attendance, to your participation in the activities of the congregation where God places you. Four, For in meeting together, we have the opportunity to encourage one another. Encourage. There's another word that we need to understand well. It's a crucial term in in the experience of the Christian life. And and it's one of those terms that's very hard to translate accurately. The term is parakaleo. It's been anglicized to the word paraclete, both as a noun and as a verb. Those of you who are older... You may recognize the term paraclete as one of the hymns in the 1984 edition of the Book of Praise had it. The old hymn 38. The Spirit, knowing all our needs, perfects our prayers and intercedes as paraclete before God's throne. Our cause he makes his very own. 
The term paraclete is so crucial to the Christian experience that both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are called paracletes in Scripture. When the Bible says that Jesus is our advocate before the Father, before the throne of God, the word is paraclete. When the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, the counselor, the helper, again the word is paraclete. Both Christ and the Holy Spirit are paracletes, and in our text, we are told that we have to paraclete each other. Now, literally, it means to call alongside. So when an individual person has a need, and then someone pulls in alongside and helps out, that person helping out, that's the paraclete. So in our setting, a counselor is a paraclete. They help an individual sort through problems. When comfort is given to someone who is grieving, that's paracleting. Coaching an athlete, that's paracleting. A lawyer in court is a paraclete. As is the probation officer or the policeman when they call someone to account. The term is very broad, so broad, that in the ESV there are at least 14 different ways to translate it. And to give you a taste, let me list them. Urge, comfort, encourage, beg, appeal, exhort, implore, entreat, plead, invite, apologize, ask, make, instruct. One way to catch the nuance of that phrase is to think of this line. It's speaking the right word at the right time in someone's life. Christ pleading for us before the throne of God. That's paraclesis. The Holy Spirit convicting us of our sins and assuring us of salvation. That's paraclesis. Preaching is paraclesis. Every word you speak to a brother or sister in the faith, or to any human for that matter, to make things better for that other person, that's paraclesis. That's encouragement. And we have to paraclete each other. That command is found throughout Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5 is, has a very strong focus on this. Verse 11, Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Or same chapter, verse 14, where we find some illustrations. We urge you, we paraclete you, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So stir one another up to meet together, to encourage one another. Again, the thrust of our text is not so much that we be encouraged as receivers. The thrust of our text is that we do the encouragement as givers. And so, congregation, we're exhorted by the Spirit to ensure that there are opportunities to meet together, that there are worship services to attend, that there are facilities in which to worship, that there are Bible studies, that there are opportunities to pray together, that we seek each other out. That's not just the job of the minister and then the elders and maybe the deacons. That's the calling of us all as we have professed faith in God and are committed to a life of sacrifice for God's glory. One final comment. There's a heavy emphasis on outreach in our circles these days, and that's good. 
Christ left us with the command to go and baptize the nations. A church that hasn't her heart for outreach is not living in obedience to Christ's commandments. However, besides outreach, there's also inreach. The care for those who are part of the communion of saints. That's as important. Do good to all men, especially to the household of faith, we read in Scripture. A church should be as focused on inreach, caring for those in the church, as it is on outreach, seeking to win others for Christ. And both outreach and inreach are focused on upreach, on praising God as a community in relation with Him. The term for that is covenant community. And that's the most important. We need to be very deliberate about the fact that in our inreach and outreach, that those two do not get in the way of our upreach. And what I mean is this. The effort we as individuals may put into inreach and outreach should not prevent us from participating in upreach. That again is the thrust of the do not neglect to meet together. For it's when we gather together, it's when we join our voices in praise of God, it's when we unite in prayer together, it's when we hear the Word of God together and discuss it together, it's when we sit at God's table together, it's when we actively bear each other's burdens through our gifts, that's when we're encouraging one another. We should not neglect our communal upreach for the sake of outreach or inreach. Because the love for God transcends the love for fellow humans and ourselves. For it's through meeting together before God that we receive the encouragement we stand in need of. And we need encouragement. We come to our last thought. The day is coming. Call to think carefully about stirring up one another is motivated by an appeal to the approaching of the day. Now, given the context of the letter of the Hebrews, think of references as the appointed day in earlier chapters. The author is thinking there is Psalm 95. And think also of the reference to judgment and salvation in Hebrews 9. This is the day of Christ's coming. The thing to realize is that when the day comes, the work is over. Once the day of Christ comes, there's no time anymore to stir up one another to love and good works. There's, there's no place for being called to meet together and encourage one another. For then, as Hebrews 12 is going to make clear, the race is over. Once the marathon is over, and there never will be another marathon again, there's no need to train Indeed, the imagery goes further. Once the marathon is over, God's people will have reached perfection. And what is now training will then be full reality. We will need no stirring up to love and good works. For God's people will be perfect. They'll only do love and good works. We won't need to be urged to meet together. We're always going to be together the way we should be. We won't need encouragement. For after Christ's day, God's people will live without the challenges of doubt and sin that fill our lives today. But that final day of the Lord hasn't been yet. And as we see that day approaching, we need to focus our thoughts on our calling all the more. There's two sides to this. First of all, as we stir up one another to love and good works... 
through meeting together and encouraging one another, we become God's instruments to prevent others from falling away, from dropping out of God's people. And that's important. For the more that live to praise God when the day of Christ comes, the more glorious that they will be. Just like it doesn't look good for a politician when just a few people come to his rally, so it doesn't look good for God when those who are saved are but few. Now, of course, God determines who will be saved and who not. But we should realize that in saving people, God uses us humans. He makes us the paracletes, the encouragers, the instruments of the Spirit. And so we're going to use every opportunity that we're afforded by God to be there for others, so that also those others, together with us, will be there for God. And second, those who fall by the wayside and, and those who are never reached cannot be saved once the day has come. It's the salvation of others, their eternal well-being, that also motivates us to stir up one another to love and good works. If we don't engage, when, when God gives us the commands and the opportunity, the time, the place, the gifts, we need to engage. We have to be there. For given where things are now at in our dispensation, no one should come to Christ's day without knowing what it's about. We need to be busy with the work of God to bring all peoples to faith. And so, congregation, let the glory of God on His day and the eternal well-being of the people around you motivate you to stir up one another to love and good works. Yeah. Consider how to stir each other up. As young people profess their faith in God and express commitment to lifelong service of God, be reminded about what it means. It's not about receiving it's about giving. It's about sacrificing. And the beauty of it all is that as we sacrifice and as we give, we also benefit. We also receive. Think of Christ. He sacrificed Himself and now He's seated at God's right hand. All is well for Him. We, as we're gathered here together, bring Christ praise and glory for His sacrifice. For He gained by His sacrifice the things that benefit us. And so now He benefits from our praise. And that's how it will be when you actively engage with each other. As we re reach up to God for pray with praise, God's blessings will descend upon us. As we reach into one another as brothers and sisters in the faith, we are not only to give to each other, but we also have to receive from each other. And as we reach out to society around us, we grow through the struggles we encounter. We're thrilled, just as the angels in heaven are, when someone comes to share the faith with us. So Rachel and Emma, as you profess faith in God, realize it comes with an obligation to walk the talk. It's not just about what you know in your head and then what you hold dear in your heart. It's also about what you do with your hands. Serve one another so as to serve God, and you will be blessed. And we read at the start from 1 Thessalonians 5. After the calls to encourage one another in view of the coming day of the Lord, the Apostle Paul said this, Now, may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely, make you completely holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He, not you, He will do it. Amen.